had me at jello playing the cello has so many pluses it never grows old well hi everybody it's five o'clock on a friday again and you know what that means it's time almost time to practice cello all weekend long but first it's time for cello chat and with me this week i have another uw whitewater cello student current student at, at uw whitewater Emma Dutcher. Emma, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. Um, preparing for finals week, mostly. <laughs> fun, fun. Endless yeah. hours of fun. Yes. <laughs> All right. Would you tell the viewer a bit about your uh, your story, your musical background? Um, I've been involved in music for a really long time. I first... Technically, my first musical experience was in choir, and it started in, like, I want to say, like, maybe, like, first grade or something like that, like, really long ago. And then at my elementary school, they had students start orchestra or, like, string instruments at um, fourth grade. So I started, that was the first time I started strings, like, playing strings, and I chose cello right away and it's just like stuck I don't particularly have like a story of why I chose the cello like I just kind of think I got lucky like I've tried you know a little bit of some of the other string instruments but I just think cello is my favorite um I might be a little biased but um <laughs> I've always just loved the instrument I love the fact that it's so similar to the human voice. It just, it makes all the music so evocative, I think. And it, I really like that about the instrument. Um, since then, some other things, I've, I've been involved in theater for a long time too. So like musical theater is a big part of my life as well. I've been involved in musical theater and theater related stuff since sixth grade. So just you know, a long time basically is the short version of the answer. Cool. Excellent. Well, and I'll also note just for the viewer's sake, you are, um, I just kind of like to point out certain things that, that I'll point out to the cello studio when we get together for seminar, but you are always very high achieving in that musicality just kind of give it all you got don't hold anything back and and that's maybe an outgrowth of your musical theater I mean your theater theater interests or vice versa but um that's so important in music that we we never just go out on stage and take for granted the audience's willingness to give us their time but that we really do earnestly try to move them Right. I totally agree. Definitely. Excellent. All right. Well, so there were some stock kind of these backlog of questions that that um, either that I get from school visits or or from the website or something. But then you had some really interesting ones of your own. Let's start with those. All right. Um, my first one is um, about habits um, and particularly when you're practicing and you're trying to focus on breaking a bad habit, um, but like it starts to come back without you even realizing it, like how would you 
like, do you have any tips or advice on how to prevent just like that slipping back into your bad habit without even like realizing it? (laughs) (laughs) Habits are the worst, aren't they? I think about how, when, if you are on an antibiotic and you go to the doctor and they say, take every last one, even if you think you've, you've beaten it, take all of them. And it's kind of like that sometimes with habits where sometimes if we just assume that what we're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg and that it goes deeper than it does, we'll never, we'll never regret making that assumption and just kind of uh, purging that habit as much as we can. Um, basically, if I mean, I don't know, the word nag is not necessarily the nicest word in the language, but we kind of, if we nag ourselves again and again about our highest priority habit to change, like you've got a little, little uh, cello person sitting on your shoulders saying, remember to do this, remember to do this, remember to do this. Um, and the moment that you think that you've gotten it beaten, is not the moment to stop thinking about it, but but you keep it on that top priority for a long time, maybe weeks thereafter, and intentionally telling yourself, yes, I used to do things this way, now I do things this way. I used to do things this way, now I do things that way. And part of it is that by thinking about, I've gone from here to here, in some cases, not only does that help to get rid of that bad habit once and for all, but it also can sometimes lead us towards the next logical step in that direction um, for, you know, kind of uh, once we've gotten rid of that one habit, what does that lead to logically as well? But I mean, one of the things that I'll, I'll say in lessons, I'll say in classes is it's incumbent upon us to be more stubborn than our habit we have to be more determined than whatever our habit is. And it's not easy. There's a commercial that ran for quite a while. It was some sort of a, a fragrance or something like that. And it would, the catchphrase was that we become nose blind to certain smells. And it, it's like we become ear blind to certain things that we do on our instruments. And then maybe even more so, we become feeling blind to the way that we are used to feeling various activities and actions, you know? And mm-hmm. so somebody shows you a different way to do something and you go, oh, wow, that feels really different. But if you don't really go out of your way to, to establish that as a, a new habit, as a new norm, then the, the way that you're kind of blind to is just going to come back in again without you knowing it. That's why that's why you're feeling blind to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so out of my past teachers, I think the one that really challenged me the most to change the most habits was George Nykrupp. That was that was a bit of a shock, just totally a different bow hold entirely, for example. And you just kind of get to that moment where you go, am I, am I really going to give this an honest try and embrace it for as long as it takes to, to really feel like I am giving it an honest try? And if your answer to that is yes, then you just are, are constantly keeping that not in the back of your brain, but in the forefront of your thoughts until 
that habit changes. Um, so, I mean, I totally grant it's not easy. And everybody who's in the throes of trying to change a habit certainly has my sympathy. But one of the maybe um, silver linings or, or bright sides of it is that when you do it enough times, when you take something that was a habit and you make it different, you can get better at changing habits. You get in the habit of changing habits. You know what I mean? You yeah. become a more supple person in terms of your attitude and your, your physical approach to things. And that's really ultimately what we need. We need the ability to just change on a dime and, um, and be flexible and versatile. So yeah. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's very insightful. Thank you. Um, all right. My next question is um, about repertoire. Um, when I need to pick new repertoire, sometimes, actually most times, I don't even know like where to start. Um, do you have any advice for that? Like start, is it like worth it to start with like the composer or to start by listening to something or what do you think? Right. I think the best long-term thing are maybe two things are to just constantly be listening to as much cello repertoire as you can find, just um, following every time that you're on, whether it's YouTube or something else and you, you, Hey, you might also like this or something that's in that other column. And you just keep going down rabbit holes after different repertoire and just keep constantly expanding the variety and number of things that you have heard. That's, that's a great thing in and of itself. And then the second part of that is to keep a really open mind that you, I mean, and again, I'm not so much talking to you as just generically to, to viewers as far as not just immediately thinking, oh, I don't like that piece. You know what I mean? That you right, yeah. <laughs> let it have a chance to grow on you because the other thing is that as big as the cello repertoire is, at any given moment in uh, cellist progress, there are other factors too. I mean, like, is it is it too easy or too difficult for them? Is it um, if they haven't worked on anything from the 20th century for a while or the Romantic period or Baroque or classical, or if they uh, it would be good for them, they've only been working on slow pieces and they need to work on a fast piece or vice versa. I mean, when you start applying these additional uh, factors. And if you already only had a very small pool of things that you liked in the first place, then you find, oh, well, then nothing really applies right now. So um, keeping a, an open mind, I mean, of course, that's a good philosophy in general, but it also is with respect to the, the cello repertoire that you hear. So I think that the best sources, the American String Teachers Association, ASTA, used to have a, a, a syllabus, they called it. And it's not like the syllabus for a class where it tells you what, what the grading system is and things like that, but, but it breaks down by level uh, the cello repertoire. And now it's kind of just been uh, become a, absorbed, I suppose, become a part of their um, ASTA CAP program. 
So it's still available, in other words, through the American Spring Teachers Association website. And then ABRSM, the um, Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. So that's the British equivalent. And they also have things stratified by level of difficulty. I mean, there's always, I don't know, an asterisk that you put by those things because it's very hard in some cases because you can have some pieces that will be one level except for this one measure here or these two measures there that are that are crazy difficult. But um, but by and large, they they can point you in the right direction of the sorts of things that are your level. And then you uh, you look them up and you listen to a couple of different performers performing them and see which one resonates with you the most. So those are probably my, um, well, I, I suppose if I were to add one more to that, it would be that IMSLP, International Music Score Library Project. It seems like every year they have not only more scores available on their website, but also more ways to search kind of by topic or subtopic. So if you type in cello sonatas into that or, or um, you know, whatever it is that you're particularly interested in, that's a great way to, to find a really, in some cases, a really long list <laughs> of things to investigate for uh, future consideration. Yeah, that's some good advice. IMSLP is a good um, resource I found. So I will check that check that out for sure in the future. Um, all right, my my next question is uh, about shopping for instruments. Um, do you have any recommendations just in general about like looking for stuff? maybe looking for more affordable stuff or like um, any like specific luthier recommendations? Yes. Um, now you and I will talk luthiers. That's going to be kind of a regional thing, but in the broader topic of choosing an instrument, it isn't easy. Um, my, I enjoy trying out different cellos. And I would strongly recommend everybody take that approach of trying out opportunity, you know, looking for opportunities to try out new cellos every chance you get. So whether that means when you're going to be in a particular area and you have a few hours to spare and you just find a violin dealer in the area and you look them up and say, hey, can I come by and play a few cellos? Or, I mean, my own personal favorite is every year when I go to the again, mentioning ASTA before, American String Teachers Association, their annual conference, I just routinely set aside usually about two, maybe three windows of time, afternoon here or there, when I go to the convention floor and try out five, 10, 15 cellos. And it's amazing. It's amazing what you learn. And one of the things that you definitely learn is to... Um, ask the right questions. So you start to find out, for example, that one particular shop, you like virtually all of their cellos and you like maybe hardly any of another shop. And you're like, wait, there's something that this can't be. What's the explanation for this? And you talk to them a little bit and you learn more about the idea of setup. 
which of course is things like the strings, the brand of strings that they use. Uh, I think that would occur to a lot of us. And then also the, the cut of bridge and even the, um, in some cases, the, the planing of the fingerboard or the, the placement of the bridge. And then maybe in some cases, perhaps most importantly of all, things like just the philosophy of the, the sound post inside the cello, where some will set it to where it really brings out the low end of the instrument. And some will set it more to bring out the high end of the instrument. It's, you know, I mean, the cello is such a versatile instrument and I think that's part of why we find so many cellists that will have one brand of strings for the C and G and one for the A and D is because when we're asked to be playing bass lines, okay, you're on the bass part. Well, then that's one type of role. But then when you're on playing on the A string, for example, you're often asked to be the tenor voice and you have the melody and that's a, an entirely different role. Um, so it, in some cases it, can be almost like uh, food pairings, where just certain things, if you have this after that, food and drink, that this is going to taste better or worse after certain other things. So sometimes maybe you've been playing some bright sounding instruments, and then you go to a dark one and you go, oh, this is so dark, I love it. And is it really that you love the darkness of it or just that that previous one was, was too, too bright, for example? Um, so all of these things, unfortunately, the best way to learn your answer, your favorite answer to all of them is by trying out a whole lot of cellos. Uh, so a lot of instrument dealers, nothing against them. I have some good friends who are instrument dealers. I think it's just partially, partially the nature of the profession and, and maybe human nature too, they're going to say, oh, find one that you love and get it. Mm. And um, If you buy from a dealer where they have, they'll, they'll take that instrument as a trade-in towards a more expensive one. You're not really risking a whole lot if you like that dealer's approach and their setup and their other, the other instruments they carry. Because it's not too likely that you're going to want to trade down to a less expensive cello. So even if you go to an ever so slightly more expensive cello, you, you take however much you spend on the one and then you decide, okay, you're ready for a slight or a significant upgrade and you can um, trade it in, you know, with full, full buyback, full credit for what you paid for the previous one. So it's not as scary as if you were like, uh-oh, now it's up to you to try and figure out how to sell this if you don't like it anymore. Right. But, but they'll just say you find one that you love and you and you buy it. But I mean, let's face it, everybody, if they find one that they love and they buy it and then a few months or even a couple years down the road, they find one that they like more for less money, then that still comes across as a disappointment, you know. So I think the only real way to avoid that is to just try a whole bunch and figure out, start to be able to speak the luthier's language as well, uh, to be able to articulate to them. Yeah, I, I want something that's, you know, where, what is your priority? Is it projection? Is it um, uh, unified sound across the strings? Is it ease of playing? What are you really after? And the more you can 
articulate that to them, the more they can help steer you towards something that is going to be a good fit. Me personally, I really love versatility. You know, I like having an instrument that when I play it with my string quartet, I can, I know how to play it in such a way that it really blends in there. They're like, you know, come on, hey, be a, be a part of the organ-like sound we're trying to produce. But then if I turn around and the next thing I'm having to do is try to play it over an orchestra, that I know how to play it in such a way that I can slice through that sound as well. So knowing, knowing what you really need out of an instrument. I mean, of course, ultimately what we all need is an instrument that we just love to play. We love mm -hmm. to play. But in some cases, that's, that too is going to vary. For some of us, it's going to be physically ease of playing. So that might mean a slightly smaller cut, a slightly smaller uh, model of instrument that's easy to, easier to get around on, even if that means that it projects a little bit less or, or something, you know. But you'll find out all these things by the time you've tried out, let's say, 20, 30, 40 cellos, something like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's really uh, good advice. I That's definitely an area that I need to like learn more about i kind of want to learn more about that stuff so i'll have to try that well it's fun enjoy the process yeah really it, it is i like yeah i always like i i did go to the asta conference this year and it was fun to try some of their stuff that they had there i even tried a little bit of violin i didn't know what i was doing but it was still fun <laughs> um all right so my last question is um, about kind of your teaching a little bit about like your, um, what's the word? Like your, I don't know, the things that you teach. So basically during a lot of your lessons, you'll ask students to play loud, play out and like project their sound. Can you elaborate on that on why you think it's so important? Yes. Yes. Uh, this is, this is one I get not infrequently because whether it's master classes or or you know students in the studio it's true it's true i do want a bigger sound than what most students will will play for me will bring to me and i it's for a variety of reasons i think that if we look at the lineup of just kind of like relative loudness levels of the various instruments in a orchestra, cello is not particularly high on that. We tend to be a pretty darn quiet instrument. And um, there are times when that's, per I mean, it's perfectly fine. It's really nice in those spots where we need to play double or triple P to be able to do that. But then there's also times when if we have the melody, it's nice if people can actually hear that melody. So I think in part, it's just that I like the cello sound and I want it to be able to stand on its own and not have to sound like, well, yeah, it's kind of quiet, isn't it? And then another thing is, I think that there's something about being, getting a particular volume level for the things when we really are digging a sound that we want to hear it a certain amount you know your favorite song comes on the radio and you always turn it up you don't you know like oh, okay the the volume is perfectly fine you, you turn it up you want to 
really, really viscerally feel that sound. And it's, of course, it's not always going to work in reverse that we can say, because we're playing loud, our sound will be loved. But if you're creating a delicious sound and you're also really projecting it, um, that's going to have a much greater chance of giving the audience goosebumps or, or really moving them profoundly. And frankly, there's also some really practical benefits to it as well. If you play with a small sound and you're doing something, something less than desirable, say with the angle of the bow, the bow is crooked with respect to the bridge, your ear won't necessarily detect it. But when you're playing with a full sound, you start to hear that additional frictiony string noise. You know what I mean? It's in a yeah. way like a magnifying glass. It brings things to the fore and you can say, hey, I don't think that's the, the, the quality that I'm after here. Um, so there's that to it too. And then from a purely physical standpoint, there is definitely a, a school of thought that to play, let's say forte or fortissimo, a lot of the time is to uh, run the risk of greater tension. Um, I'm not of that school of thought. I think that necessity being the mother of invention kind of thing that when we get used to demanding a, a full sound, it makes us have to learn to embrace gravity, that, that this is a wonderful free resource that away that's going to help us connect with the string. And then when we get used to feeling the frictiony feel of resistance that it takes with a string to get a certain volume of sound, that helps to encourage us to explore that even deeper friction that you get when you move closer to the bridge, which is where all the, the, the fun overtones pop out, really that make your cello its own distinctive sound. And finally, you, in order to keep playing at a full volume, you kind of have to use the entire body as a way to swing freely, freely swing your arm, your bow back and forth. So I think it actually teaches a lot of, or you know, has the potential to teach a lot of really long-term um, approaches to the playing of the instrument that, um, I mean, of course you can learn them without playing a full volume, but they are nice, um, fringe benefits, uh, byproducts of playing with the full sound. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know, for, for every time that you run across a cellist that plays too loud and has kind of an edgy or forced sound, which, I mean, can happen, that I think that there's just a number of, of cellists that play kind of with a very uh, inward directed sound, almost as though, you know, if you were to pass by somebody on the sidewalk and they were talking below a certain volume, you wouldn't assume that they were talking to you. You'd assume that they're just talking to themselves or they have one of those phones in their ear or something. You know what I mean? They're just talking too quietly to be addressing you. And it's the same sort of thing in an audience where even the people in the back of the hall, they paid for their ticket as well. And they want to feel like, 
it is incumbent upon the person who's on the stage to reach out and engage them rather than them having to proactively try to engage themselves with what's going on in the stage because it's way, way far away from them. Yeah, I totally understand that because it's it's really like each artist or each musician, you can definitely tell if they like are focusing on that or not. If you go see their performances, it it does make a huge difference. So um, I think that's a good um, thing to focus on. I agree. Terrific. Excellent. All right. Well, and I need to also mention that this cello chat is also sponsored by Tamarack Arts, which is a, a wonderful program that, uh, among other things, it, it, its main focus is on adult learners, which definitely do not learn the same necessarily in all cases as, as other age groups. So check them out. They're at tamarackarts.org. So look them up and, uh, and thank you to them for sponsoring. And thank you, Emma, for uh, being the both the well in the hot seat this week, as it were, <laughs> yourself and asking the questions. Thank you for inviting me. It was fun. Terrific, terrific. <laughs> and to all the viewers, happy practicing all weekend long, and we'll see you this time next Friday. Take care. <laughs>